This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. As we mark the one-year anniversary of the pandemic impacting Connecticut, we've been asking what we've learned and what we've lost. Restaurant workers, healthcare workers, educators, and students all have different stories to tell about how lockdowns, shutdowns, and the reality of the disease has changed their lives. As part of this look back, we're talking with the co-founder of a project that's been asking people for their stories, their feelings, their thoughts, their fears since the start. The Pandemic Journaling Project was founded by anthropologist Sarah Willen of the University of Connecticut and Catherine Mason of Brown University. The online anonymous portal collects journal entries in written words, spoken words, and photos, both in English and in Spanish. And so far, it's reached more than 1,300 people in more than 40 countries. It's being used in college and high school classrooms and by a lot of people who just want to tell their stories. I sat down to talk with Sarah Willen about what she and her team of researchers are learning about the pandemic from the more than 10,000 journal entries they've received so far. Here's our conversation. Sarah Willen, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't you start by just explaining what exactly the Pandemic Journaling Project is? Absolutely. So the Pandemic Journaling Project is an online journaling platform and historical archive that a team of researchers and also students at the University of Connecticut and Brown with some friends here at Trinity College in Hartford put together about a year ago now with a couple of goals in mind. So one goal, if we think back to where we were a year ago, everything was so uncertain. We were trying to understand what was happening. The world was looking different. We weren't able to go about our everyday lives. And it was clear that people, at least some people, would want a place to sort of record their experiences and and kind of take stock of what was going on in their lives. And for myself and for my colleague, Kate Mason at Brown and and our other researcher colleagues, we were thinking, wow, this is history in the making. In the future, we'll want to be able to look back and understand what that uncertainty felt like, what the confusion and the fear um, and the rapid transformation looked like. And we thought that, you know, as researchers, we're used to talking to people, interviewing people, spending time with people as they go about their daily lives. And we couldn't do any of those things. But what we could do is make a space where people could put their voices down. And it was very important to us from the beginning to offer this to people as something they could use that would be meaningful to them. So people can create journal entries each week and everything they contribute is really their journal. They can download it at any time and it's theirs to keep, to share with their families, to share you know, maybe with their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren one day. And at the same time, whatever people put down in the journal entries they create becomes part of a durable historical record and will be preserved for, for the future. Is this a journal like you'd keep every day, kind of like a diary? Is this something that you can pop in whenever you have a stray thought that seems to connect with one of the prompts that you're giving people? How exactly does it work? So the way it works is when folks discover us and decide they'd like to start a journal, we ask a number of basic questions about who people are, 
Um, you know, how old are you? Where do you live? Um, how much education do you have? Um, you know, how do you identify in terms of your gender? Stuff like that, so that we can get a sense of whose voices are becoming part of, of this collection. And then we throw the gates open and say, hey, how has the pandemic been affecting you in the past week? And people can respond in writing, they can audio record and upload a recording of their voice. They can upload a photograph and reflect on that photograph. And then we do the same thing with some more guided questions. So we might ask, how is the, the pandemic affecting your closest relationships? Maybe a question that's a little internally focused. And then a question about the world around us. Something like, do you know any small businesses that have been really affected by the pandemic? Tell us a little bit about that. And so each week we use that framework where we've got this one real open-ended question saying, what's going on with you? Use whatever medium you like to put some thoughts down. And then we give some guardrails, a little bit of guidance for the second journal entry um, so that people don't feel like they're staring at a blank page. Um, you know, they have a little bit of a sense of what direction they might go. But of course, they're free to, to reflect as, as they wish in whatever way they wish. But you have a research objective, too. So tell me what exactly you're studying as you pull apart all these responses. Sure. So I'm trained as an anthropologist with a focus on health and illness. So I'm a medical anthropologist, as is my colleague at Brown, with whom I co-founded the project. So we're really interested, the two of us, in people's experiences of disruption as it relates to health, we're interested in people's mental health and how mental health has been affected by the pandemic. Uh, we also have particular interests in um, experiences of my colleague in particular, pregnancy and reproduction. I've worked to a large extent with immigrant groups in different parts of the world. So we bring those particular interests. But one thing that's really cool about this project is that we anthropologists are working with historians, with psychologists, with sociologists, with people in digital digital media. Um, so each of us is bringing different questions to the table. And because of the way we've set the project up, each of us will be able to look at different aspects of people's experiences, at different groups of people um, within this large sample um, to get at different kinds of questions. And that's one of the real benefits Sometimes we talk about this project as an effort to pre-design a historical archive. Mm. So, you know, if you think of historians, historians want to know names and maybe addresses and dates, all the specifics of people's lives. We social scientists are trained to protect people's anonymity and confidentiality. So we had to figure out how can we create an archive of material that people really feel a sense of ownership over, in which we know enough about the people contributing that we'll be able to extrapolate, that we'll be able to learn some generalizable lessons um, at the same time. And so the way we've done this is by asking those demographic questions on the front end. So we know, you know, generally a person's social position, and then we hear their voice and we can look at people of similar social positions and get a sense of how members of that group are experiencing the pandemic now. I, I'm wondering how you feel that the journal entries that you've been getting understanding that you probably haven't gotten a chance to read all 10,000 of them, how the tone, the content has changed over this past year? That's a terrific question. 
we're certainly seeing trends. One of the things that we're finding most interesting and most significant about this project is that no one is living through just the pandemic, right? We've lived through the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing social protests. We're living through the pandemic and, you know, for parents with small kids like myself, questions about how, what are we going to do in the fall when it's time for school and what's that all going to look like? Um, you know, the pandemic and the elections and all the turbulence of the fall, the pandemic and the wildfires out in the West Coast, you know, for folks who were contributing from California, they had a lot to say about what it's like to not be able to breathe inside or outside. Um, so as we've lived through this whole year, one of the big themes that we're seeing is that the pandemic is for some of us, the background to what we're living, for others, it's very much in the forefront as we think about the risks that are posed to us and to those we care about the most, or, you know, we're, we're deep in mourning for a loved one that we've lost. So the experiences have been very different. Um, so that's one key theme, the ways in which the pandemic entwines with everything else we've been living through in this, this extraordinarily turbulent year. You know, a lot of people are struggling with their responsibility to others and the ways in which either social isolation or restrictions on movement have limited our ability to follow through on our obligations to the people we care about, to the people who depend on us. And that might mean people who live in our homes, our partners or our children or older relatives. Um, it might mean people who live very far from us, an elderly parent or a disabled parent or relative who lives, you know, maybe in another state, maybe even another country that we just, whom we just can't care for in the way we want to. And for many people being hampered in our ability to care and take responsibility is really painful and really upsetting. So that's another key theme, people's uh, constraints on the ability to follow through on those obligations that really define us mm -hmm. and define who we are as people. Another theme that we're hearing a lot about is gratitude. I think a lot of people are seeing life in a different way, in a different light, and really feeling gratitude for things that they might not have noticed before, whether it's icicles outside of, of your home or, you know, the farm animals on the farm that you work, um, you know, for your sustenance. Um, for some people, it's the ability to connect more deeply with loved ones. And that could mean people, you know, that you share space with or people that you're using technology to connect with in ways that despite the distance, despite the, you know, the technological interface, who actually do feel closer to us. So that sense of gratitude has been really a very strong theme. But often that gratitude is mixed with a sense of guilt, mm. sense of guilt for being okay, um, when others aren't okay. Wow. So, you know, I, you know, we'll hear from people saying things like, um, I'm just so grateful that my, you know, I'm able to keep my job. My partner has a job. We have a roof over our heads. We're able to order delivery groceries. Um, our lives are really quite fine. And we know that other people are facing extraordinary risk. We know that other people are losing loved ones, are losing their lives to this pandemic. Um, and so often there's, there's a, you know, a sense that the gratitude is tinged with a sense of guilt or, you know, other more complicated feelings. And that's not just among people who are really privileged. And that's something we've noticed too. Even folks who are, you know, socioeconomically 
not especially well off often feel that sense of, I'm so grateful to be okay, but these people close to me really are not. That's so interesting. You, you mentioned a few groups that uh, you have been able to reach, healthcare providers and in older residents. One that stood out to me, I'm just going to read it here. It says, I'm 76 years old, retired RN. I took care of others for 50 years. I now find I am unable to access healthcare, have had tests postponed, and cannot even get an in-person appointment with my doctor. That to me, in reading through a lot of these and hearing some of the voices, strikes me as a thread that there's a, a sense of a, a medical system, a health system in America that's just broken. That's absolutely a thread that I've heard as well. And I do remember that post and I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this is where we are. This is really where we are, where people who have been part of a system and been committed to caring for others professionally, their whole careers are now bereft of the most basic attention that they need uh, in this moment of crisis. I think in addition to a sense of uh, frustration and uh, loss of faith in the healthcare system, we've been hearing a lot of, um, you know, people expressing concerns and, and lack of faith in other institutions as well. That's another significant theme we've been hearing throughout the journals, a sense that, you know, for those of us in particular who have grown up in the United States feeling reasonably committed to the idea that the American dream is a thing, mm. uh, you know, to a sense of American meritocracy, this has really shaken the foundations of that faith. There are many Americans who started off having very little faith in those myths and those dreams because of their own experiences and the experiences of those communities. But certainly for people who grew up thinking, if I work hard and I do it all right, I'm going to be okay, and the institutions of society are going to take care of me, this past year has been a real shocker. Yeah. I, I want to play a couple of the voices that have been featured on the page. And again, these are folks who've decided to record through a voice memo or something else their thoughts for this journal entry. And this is another one of the themes that I think not only have we seen through some of the, the journal entries, but also just I've been hearing from people all throughout the course of this year. It feels like nothing has changed in so many weeks that hard to even remember what things were like before so I guess that's the main impact is just that um, everything has been so much the same for so many weeks now um, that I feel like I'm starting to lose my mind a little bit um, yeah I mean that speaks to, I think, what an awful lot of people have been have been feeling. Absolutely. A sense that time isn't what it was, that it, time doesn't feel the way it used to feel. We hear people use the phrase Groundhog Day a lot, thinking mm. back to that old film. You know, you wake up every morning and it all feels the same and you feel like you're going through the same routines again and again. 
the seasons have mattered for sure. Um, you know, and people across the country experience different seasons at different moments. So sure. it's kind of interesting. Like folks in the South were experiencing spring a little earlier than those of us here in the Northeast are, are hopefully beginning to feel it. But this sense that time both stood still and at the same time is sort of accelerated in certain moments has been interesting to track in the journals. Temporal disruption, definitely a big theme. <laughs> it, it is it is a huge theme. Here, here's, a, here's another theme, and I think this is, this is something that we've been hearing from people of all ages, I think of all backgrounds, and it's been happening for an entire year. Um, I used to run into my friends before the pandemic and kind of have really nice casual interactions with them. So that's how the pandemic has affected my life in this past week. It's been reminding me of the need for social connection and how much I miss that. that. That need for social connection and, you know, in the work that you do, it seems as though that's a really important thing to to understand how our need to have connection with, with other people has been severed and in some cases pretty irreparably, at least for a while. There's a term that some people have been using lately to talk about the experience of not being able to touch another person for an extended period of time, this term skin hunger. Mm. We're hearing about that. I think that's one end of a spectrum of feeling so isolated, so cut off, even from the touch of another human. Um, many of us are in a different position and, and have had people around us. Um, but I think for all of us, the sense of being cut off from those everyday interactions that, you know, you never really, most of us probably didn't think about them very much before the pandemic began, you know, whether it's people in line behind you in the coffee shop making snide remarks that you laugh at, or, you know, people that you see every day when you park your car in the parking lot, or, you know, in my case, my students, I haven't been able to be in a room with my students. We're all experiencing this in different ways. And the, the lack of physical co-presence has been so disruptive. And it's definitely something that lots of people have felt the need to comment on and reflect on in terms of the way it's affected them, particularly in, you know, in these journals. But, but there's also a flip side that you're beginning to see, and probably you've been seeing in the journals for the last few months, as the vaccine rolls out, as things start to get to the point where you can feel like maybe they're going to get back to normal, there's this there's this flip side, and, and this is expressed in another one of the journal entries. Like suddenness with which things have changed and people are feeling empowered to not wear masks um, or not socially distance or um, just kind of do the things that they've been wanting to do for the past year. I feel like it's not quite safe yet to do that. Um, but there's still a lot of people that, you know, understandably want life to, quote unquote, get back to normal. Uh, but we're not there yet. And I have a lot of fear around how that's playing out. So one of the things that uh, a year long project might be able to help you track is the way in which people's attitudes toward this change are changing over time. So some people were in denial at first and some people right away said this is a big problem there were people i know who didn't come out of their house for months and there are people i knew who acted like nothing had ever changed from the start but then because of the lockdowns and the shutdowns and everything that happened 
everyone sort of converged in a point where we were all kind of staying at home and just going to the grocery store for a while. And now it feels like it's sort of spreading out on the other end again, right? Where some people are still very, very fearful. And some people are saying, I really need to get out and do something. My mental health is frankly almost as important as whether or not I get COVID. And this person, I think, speaks to this, this real fear that some have that there's so much desire right now in spring of 2021 to like get back out there and it's just not safe. Yeah, I think I, I love this clip that you've pulled and I think it says a couple of other really important things to us as well. It certainly helps us see how the journals themselves or you know, pe the journals people create can serve as a space for kind of thinking stuff through and processing you know, because sometimes thoughts rush through our heads, but we don't really have time to sit back and reflect. And here we hear someone using this space to think, you know, where am I at with all of this? Where, What do I feel comfortable with? What do people around me see as important? And where do I sit? Um, so the value of, of the journals as a, a way to process is really illust illustrated in, in the clip that you played. Another thing that I think we can take away from this clip is how extraordinarily valuable it's going to be to have hundreds of voices reflecting mm -hmm. on the same dilemma in the same historical moment. So when we think about the Pandemic Journaling Project as a collection, we researchers will be able in the near future and into the distant future to be able to look back and say, all right, on March, you know, arbitrary date, March 14th, what were folks saying? What were folks saying in Connecticut and what were folks saying in Texas and what were folks saying in California? And how about folks, you know, maybe in Germany or in Sweden? Um, and to be able to hear a lot of different voices reflecting on the same dilemma in the same historical moment will be extraordinarily valuable in terms of understanding the kinds of ambivalence and uncertainty, the shape of that ambivalence and uncertainty, and to study it in relation to things like policy decisions and policy shifts at the state level or at the national level in relation to um, the history of vaccine rollouts and who was able to get a vaccine in which places at which moments in time. Can I play one more clip for you? Do you have time? Absolutely. I can't feel secure about anything. Feels like I just can't do this anymore. Fed up of closing doors. Wanna trust my neighbors again. Wanna go out with my friends. Wanna feel free. Go back to what I used to be. I love that one. <laughs> I, I love it both because, you know, someone's expressing themselves in song, but but also I just sort of love the line, I want to feel free, I want to go back to what I used to be. That's, um, I mean, yeah, that's a pretty powerful statement. It is a powerful statement. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of people saying it's not going to be what it used to be. It's going to be something different. But that doesn't change the longing, right? And the medium of song really allows this person to just go to that place of longing, of yearning for things to be what they were and to feel okay with it. Um, and another thing I love about that, and I've probably heard that song seven or eight times now, <laughs> is that you hear joy, right? You hear disappointment and frustration, but you also hear joy. And that's one of the things I love finding in the journals um, as I go through them myself, just to hear people 
being playful and creative, uh, taking up the ukulele, uh, you know, learning how to take <laughs> apart their keyboard and put it back together again, um, you know, making art. Yeah, the sourdough bread figures in every once in a while, but <laughs> lots of people are really creative in, in a lot of different ways. And so that, that little song, I think, is a really perfect illustration of how, in addition to the reflections on loss and mourning and suffering and struggle, we also are hearing people express a whole lot of joy in these journals, too. Sarah, thanks so much for your time and for sharing this project. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Sarah Willen is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Connecticut, where she also directs the research program on global health and human rights at the Human Rights Institute. If you want to start a journal of your own, you can go to their website. It's pandemicjournalingproject.org. Thanks to the staff of the Connecticut Mirror for their help in producing our program. The steady beats that you hear are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, and they're recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me, and we'll talk to you soon.